It's March 16th, 2023. This is a special edition of Rook. Welcome to episode 247 of Rook, a two-hour special edition, The Power of Reza Shah. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Salam dustan aziz. Durur parashama. Well, if you are Iranian, you may have some awareness of the first king and founder of the Pahlavi dynasty, but how well do you know the story? On the occasion of the anniversary of what would have been Reza Shah's birthday this week, we thought we would give you an updated look at a man who has been called the father of modern Iran. This is based on episodes we did as part of our Contemporary History of Iran series last year. With the current uprising in Iran and the eyes of the world on the prospective overthrow of the Islamic Republic regime, the name Reza Shah has once again been in the air, from the streets of Iran to dinner table conversations to history seminars and the debates of political pundits. Our aim with the Contemporary History of Iran series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran, and we do that as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change and using alternative voices or angles. All right, let's get started. Here now is a special edition of Rook, The Power of Reza Shah. Well, it is impossible to speak of the contemporary history of Iran without at some point spending some time focusing on the man who has been called the father and founder of modern Iran, Reza Shah Pahlavi. Indeed, Reza Shah's evolution from military leader to prime minister to king of Iran from 1925 to 1941 would see him presiding over a fundamental transformation of Iran and the centralization of the Iranian state. He can be credited with everything from unifying warring tribes to a national railroad, the Persianization of Iran, the suppression of the dominance of the clergy, women's rights and educational and judicial reform. But Reza Shah was also widely seen as an autocrat who ruled with an iron will and by many accounts was deeply unpopular by the time he was effectively forced from the throne and into exile by the British in 1941. So who was this man who came from modest means and became Iran's powerful ruler and established the Pahlavi dynasty? And what led to his dramatic fall and the heartbreak of his final years in exile? We've decided to look at the power of Reza Shah with a featured guest who has quite literally recently written the book on this subject. Dr. Shaul Bakhash is an Iranian-American historian, author, and scholar. He is an expert in the history of the modern Middle East with an interest in the history of Iran. Dr. Bakhash has been the Clarence J. Robinson Professor of History Emeritus at George Mason University since 1985. He was a Guggenheim Fellow and has had fellowship 
Fellowships at the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and the National Humanities Center. He was born and raised in Iran. He obtained his BA and MA from Harvard and his doctorate from Oxford. Before beginning his academic career, Dr. Bakhosh was a journalist in Iran where he wrote for the Kahan newspaper. This is before the 1979 revolution. Dr. Bakhosh has published numerous articles in prestigious journals and newspapers such as the New York Review of Books, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Republic, the Times of London, the Financial Times, and The Economist. And he is the author of several books, including The Politics of Oil and Revolution in Iran, Iran, Monarchy, Bureaucracy, and Reform under the Qajars, 1858 to 1896, and The Reign of the Ayatollahs. His latest book is called The Fall of Reza Shah, The Abdication, Exile, and Death of Modern Iran's Founder. And right now, Dr. Shal Bakhosh joins us from Virginia. Hello, sir. Hi, Jean. Good to hear from you. It is a great honor to get to do this with you, and I have very much enjoyed devouring your latest book on Reza Shah. Thank you for doing this. Of course. So it, it only seems natural to begin with the rise of Reza Shah. And I want to talk about how this one man was responsible for the transformation, as I said in the introduction of Iran. If you can, just to begin with, give me a very brief and general context before we get into the details. When we talk about transforming a country, it almost sounds like hyperbole, but it is true that the period from 1925 to 1941 under Reza Shah was one of dramatic change in Iran, yes? Oh, yes. And when you compare the Iran that Reza Shah took over in 1921 and the Iran Reza Shah left in 1941, it was a very different country. You know, we, we think of monarchs and we inevitably, at least someone of my generation, I think of, say, the British monarchy, and I think of long family dynasties and heirs to the throne. Uh, there's a sense that each king or queen has really done little to earn their throne other than having the great fortune or misfortune, depending on your position, of being born into a privileged family. But in the case of Reza Shah, or formerly Reza Khan, there was no Pahlavi monarchy before him. He started this from scratch. How astounding is that in the context of history? Well, this is very surprising. It doesn't happen very often that one uh, dynasty is overthrown and another dynasty takes over. Um Obviously, of course, Reza Shah, after staging a coup, first became military commander, then prime minister, and only then did uh, the Iranian parliament vote to abolish the former dynasty, the Qajars, and to uh, establish a new dynasty. Reza Shah chose the name Pahlavi for his dynasty, an ancient Iranian name and then ruled Iran for the next, what is it, from 1925 to 1941, 19, for 16 years. Can you paint a picture of this man? Reza Shah was born Reza Khan around 1876 into a family of very modest means. Who was he? Where did he grow up? Well, Reza Shah was born in a village in the mountains of Alborz above Tehran. He lost his father at a very early age and basically was raised by his mother. 
and an uncle who helped bring him up. He had limited education, although the idea that he was illiterate is certainly wrong. Uh, he, he read well and uh, liked to read newspapers and books on Iranian history. He served initially in the Cossack Brigade, a Russian officered uh, military force that was established in Iran in 1978 under the Qajars. 1878, uh, I assume, right? 1878, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it, it remained Russian officered for a long time. Uh, Reza Shah proved himself very able from the beginning and rose quickly through the ranks. And uh, by the age of 40, he was the head of the Hamadan detachment in the Cossack Brigade. How does he get involved in this Cossack Brigade? His uncle was a member of the Cossack Brigade, and I would imagine it was his uncle who int introduced him to the Cossack Brigade commanders who took him on. You know, one of the things that, um, given that he becomes such a visionary in terms of um, depending on how you want to put it, dragging Iran into the 20th century or uh, forming that centralized state, etc., the modernizing, whatever the word is. Um, it's quite amazing that not only does he not have an extensive formal education, but you note later in the book uh, that this great modernizer actually never saw it never experienced a European-style modern country that he wanted to model Iran after. In fact, the first time he would be in a place like that would be in his final years in exile in Johannesburg. That's, that's very interesting. What does it say about this man? Well, it's interesting, yes, that he, he was touched by and caught on the ideas circulating around the intelligentsia in Iran. As a member of the Cossack Brigade, you did see how badly the military was treated by the Qajar dynasty, little pay, poorly clad soldiers, and the like. He also, having taken part in a number of campaigns to suppress tribal and other uprisings, uh, how ununified the country was. He realized the country was badly governed. And this desire um, grew up in him to make Iran strong, give it a strong central government, and to modernize it. And interestingly, too, he also caught the bug of nationalism, which on the whole was new to Iran beginning in the late 19th century. Where would he have caught that bug of nationalism? Well, it's hard to say, really. I think it probably was during his military service. He developed a resentment of the fact that the Cossack Brigade was officered by Russians, by foreigners. And as I say, he seemed, he, uh, seemed to be very sensitive to and to have caught the ideas that were circulating not among the poorer classes, but among the intelligentsia.
it's remarkable to me that he, you know, he hasn't been to France, he hasn't been to to England, he hasn't been to the United States, uh, and even Russia, and yet he he has this idea, he has this notion of what he wants or what he wants to help Iran become. Um, he's also very ambitious. And you say that from his time as a young officer in the in the Cossack Brigade, uh, Reza Khan, as he was known then, had what you've described as a voracious appetite for accumulating wealth. How do we know that? He obviously had been poor, like many Iranians from the countryside whose first experience was, was farming. He developed a particularly voracious appetite for land and he wanted i think to make sure his family would be comfortable and he must have seen wealth as a means both to power and to security so from the moment he and a political collaborator said zia dean seized power he began to accumulate wealth, first by seizing it or taking it from wealthy Iranians, and then as king by accumulating land. By the time his reign ended, he was probably Iran's uh, largest landlord with properties in Iran's agriculture-rich uh, uh, north, first of all, but really almost everywhere. He collected land and created an elaborate bureaucracy to handle it for him. You, you talk about him seizing power. What, what was, again, his name at that point was Reza Khan. Reza Khan's role in the coup of 1921 that would lead to the departure of Ahmad Shah, the last Shah of the Qajar dynasty? Well, he, at some stage, uh, reformers uh, introduced Reza Shah and Said Ziyad-Din Tabatabai, a journalist and politician who had ideas for reform, and had, even before the coup of 1921, mixed with uh, diplomats and British officials. When World War I occurred, and then the Russian Revolution, the British became the dominant, not only political, but military outsider in Iran. They uh, persuaded the ruling Shah, Ahmad Shah, to get rid of the Russian officers of the brigade. And uh, British commanding officer in Iran, Lord General Ironside, quickly noticed Reza Shah as a, Reza Khan, I should say, as a, uh, well, rather outstanding officer. The only commitment that Ironside, who sensed that Reza Shah was thinking of staging a coup, um, the only commitment he wanted from Reza Shah before he pulled British troops out of Iran in 1921 was uh, 
that he would not attack British forces and that he would leave the Qajar dynasty in place. Um, once uh, Ironside withdrew British troops from Iran, uh, this opened the door to uh, Reza Khan and his collaborator, Sayyid Zia, to march on Tehran and stage their coup. And by the way, Reza Khan is not, he's not sitting in an armchair somewhere giving orders. Like he's actually a military man leading these, these uh, advances himself, right? Yes, he had uh, Ironside before he withdrew from Iran, persuaded Ahmad Shah to basically put the Cossack Brigade in Reza Shah's hands. You say at one point that those around Reza Khan, they they saw him, they identified his his raw talent and saw him as someone who could become president in a potential new republic. Uh, this is in the early 1920s, of course, before he becomes uh, king, and the, and that that is the path he ends up taking. Uh, they're watching events in Turkey, and they see similar possibilities for Iran. What was the example that Ataturk was setting that those around Reza Khan saw as a comparable? In, in Turkey, Ataturk, a military officer, uh, at the end of the following the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in World War One, also took power, and he abolished the Sultanate, the monarchy in Turkey, and established a republic, and then launched Turkey on a program of extensive reform. Uh, there were in Iran, particularly among the intelligentsia and the political class, uh, a great admiration for what uh, Ataturk was doing in Turkey. And they thought Reza Khan, the man who had now had power in Iran, as the person to become a president rather than Shah right. in Iran and carry out the same kind of reforms in Iran. Many of the reforms, in fact, that Reza, Shah, Reza Khan first and then Reza Shah undertook in Iran were very similar to those that had occurred and were occurring in Turkey. So, so Reza Khan becomes Reza Shah the king, uh, uh, not the president. H how does Reza Khan, the military strongman and then prime minister, become Reza Shah the king? Uh, after the coup in 1921, um, even though his partner, Said Zia, was the political figure in the diumvirate, uh, Reza Shah, very, Reza Khan, I should say, at that stage, very quickly proved the more adept um, of the two, both as a politician and, of course, the man who had the power, the military, uh, in hand. He got rid of uh, Said Zia and then in time got rid of uh, Ahmad Shah. Ahmad Shah left Iran two years after the 1921 coup and he really never returned. 
So initially there was talk of establishing a republic in Iran. And uh, Reza Khan himself, it appears, was taken by the idea. But the clergy in Iran were strongly opposed, um, in large part because um, Ataturk leading a republic in neighboring Turkey was also strongly secularizing and weakening the clergy. In fact, he abolished the caliphate mm. and uh, set about secularizing Turkish society. They did not want uh, a similar pattern in Iran. So they strongly opposed uh, the establishment of a republic. Uh, Reza Khan met with the clerical leaders in the holy city of Qom, and when he came out of his meeting with the clerical leaders, he asked his followers to uh, drop all talk of a republic. Uh, with the idea of a republic uh, no longer on the table, the movement began to have Reza Shah declared king, which occurred uh, when uh, parliament and then a constituent assembly abolished the Qajar dynasty and established uh, the monarchy, invested the monarchy in uh, the new dynasty, Pahlavi, uh, led by Reza Shah now. What a fascinating and paradoxical twist that it is the clergy that ends up enabling the establishment of a new monarchy that they will thereafter oppose. Uh, indeed, because Reza Shah, once fully in power, also launched a campaign of secularization in Iran and uh, went after, tried to break the power of the clergy in Iran. Just before we leave his uh, years, his pre-monarchy years, how, just on a personal level, how, how important do you believe that Reza Shah's military background was in him co-opting power and becoming uh, the Shah Pahlavi, Reza Shah? Well, of course, uh, he had power. I mean, as the head of the Cossack Brigade and what military force there was in Iran. That was very important. But really, it also was his, his own leadership qualities. And he very quickly established himself as the leader and the most powerful man in the new government, the new establishment. And uh, I suppose his military background, and to a certain degree, unfortunately, the example of Russian officers who had commanded the Cossack Brigade, a certain tendency towards autocracy, uh, leading by dictates from above, was a characteristic of Reza Shah. So he uh, he becomes Reza Shah, and he promptly begins the path towards, effectively for the first time, a centralized state in Iran, which is quite remarkable. One of the reasons it's remarkable is, from what I understand, Iran up until this point is a series of, is a collection of, 
disunified and warring tribes. How challenging was it to try to unify and or undermine the tribal culture of Iran? Well, it was a big challenge. Uh, now, I wouldn't say tribal wars, but the, in their own regions, the different large tribes of Iran, the Qashqai, the Bakhtiari, were quasi-independent and uh, not really under government control. The political class was weak and divided. There were, for example, before the rise of Reza Khan, six cabinets in a matter of just 19 months. The corruption was very widespread. Um, Ahmad Shah, the last Qajar ruler, accepted, demanded actually, British payments to appoint as prime minister a politician the British favored and then demanded payments to sign the Anglo-Persian agreement uh, into which details we won't go, but again, an agreement the British wanted very much. But here was a king willing to accept bribes and a subsidy from a foreign government to do what they wished rather than what was in the interest of the country. Uh, the politicians were also corrupt, and even the uh, officers of such military force as existed pocketed a lot of the pay of the common soldiers. So yes, Iran was decentralized. The political class and the government as a whole were corrupt. The government was very weak. Uh, for example, during World War I, Russia and then the Soviet Union, the British and the Ottomans all used Iranian territory to carry out their war aims. During the war to protect its interests, the British established three separate military forces in different parts of Iran. Uh, so the Iran that Reza Khan, there was a Shah, took over was basically very weak, uh, decentralized, with a central government that had little control over the country as a whole. And he, I mean, some of what you, what you write in the book, uh, almost. Um, it plays out like a movie. I mean, when there's to to bring on the, the a couple of the final tribes that you know are not yet on board. I mean, Reza Shah, Reza Khan, Reza Shah, uh, literally rides into town. I mean, it says, okay, you know, uh, 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 you know, with military might, says you're joining, right? I mean, the, you you're you you're going to become part of this unified country. Rising to town is a very good way of putting it. Uh, in, in the south, in the province of Khuzestan, the uh, most powerful tribal chief was Sheikh Khazal, the head of the Arab tribes in that region. And he had practically an independent government in the south. He had a separate agreement, a secret one with the British government, uh, who pledged to support him. And he 
Reza Khan marched his troops, led them into Khuzestan and forced uh, Sheikh Hazal to surrender. So yes, I mean, it was a series of military campaigns that uh, brought tribal autonomy under control and tamed the tribes. Again, it's quite fascinating that he is... He's both the the military leader and the king. Uh, he's he's not the king giving the orders to the general, uh, and and that's no doubt what is part of the the secret sauce that makes him the most powerful man in Iran for almost two decades. Uh, when we talk about centralization of the state, um, there's so many examples of this. But let me just pick one and and ask you to talk about it. How did, for example, establishing a national railroad and, and roadway change the Iranian economy? Well, let us first say the establishment of a railroad was a dream of, 19, of reformers ever since the 19th century. But it was a aspiration that never was realized until uh, Reza Shah. And he managed to build a railroad north to south, right across the entire country, and to do so with uh, domestic funds alone. He hated the idea of foreign loans. Um, The railway was a marvel of an engineering project uh, because there were many difficult parts of the country through which the rail line had to pass. But he did that, and of course, it, the railroad once established became a important way of linking uh, many parts of the country together, of facilitating trade and the movement of goods and people uh, between cities and towns. Uh, it remained, of course, one of the accomplishments in which Reza Shah himself took great pride you know whether it's the, the, the he's he's doing these things on a practical level or overseeing the railroad the changes to the judiciary the education system uh, but then he's also keenly interested in uh, larger symbols and um, Persian identity the Persianization of I- Iran uh, let me ask you about that I mean first of all how, how effective was the changing of Arabic names of cities and towns to Persian ones? And what was the reasoning behind that? Well, again, you know, it's one of the striking qualities of Reza Shah that he picked up on this idea of Iranian nationalism and making Iran, as you said, Persianization of the country. There were many Arabic place names across the country. Uh, There were many Arabic words in the Persian language. And Reza Shah went about systematically changing all that. An academy was created to, in fact, to find Persian equivalents of Arabic terms and words in the Iranian language. Arabic names across the country were changed to Iranian ones. And the Iranian past was glorified. 
uh, Reza Shani's lieutenant picked on the period not of Islamic greatness, but of the period, the pre-Islamic period of Iranian greatness. That is the period under the uh, Achaemenians in the history books, in, in the schools, this history was emphasized and taught. Reza Shah was also a great patron of a revival of Persian art and uh, the task of archaeology of per Iran's ancient sites. So in many ways, yes, I mean, the Iranian identity uh, of Iranians was emphasized. I didn't also mention, of course, the imposition of a uniform dress on the country. Oh, let me get to that. <laughs> that's yes. a that's a whole other thing I have to ask you about. But but when you say the reviving of symbols, I, he I mean he led the revival of Persepolis, right? Yes, very much so. He patronized and sponsored the dig. At Persepolis, uh, he brought foreign archaeologists to help in this task. Uh, yes, very much so. Dr. Bakhash, you, you, you touched on this earlier, but can you just go into detail of why he chose the Pahlavi name? Pahlavi was the name of a, a referred to a, to a language that was common in Iran in, in pre-Islamic times. Uh, so again, yes, as you suggest, the name of the dynasty itself went back to uh, the period of Iranian greatness and the period before Islam. And by the way, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in detail later. Part of the, as it were, Persianization project was to weaken the clergy and the impact of Islam on Iran. Well, I was just going to say, how did this Persianization go over with the clergy. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't so popular. And it wasn't because it affected them as well. For example, the clergy were the, the principal vehicle for the education of children. And he established a uh, network of public schools throughout the country at the primary and secondary level. And these schools taught not Arabic, but Farsi, the Persian language, emphasized not the history of Iran under Islam, but the history of Iran before Islam. He established schools for women, for girls, as well as boys. And again, this went against the, uh, shall we say, the instincts of the clergy and of course the most dramatic uh, anti-clerical move as it turned out to be was the abolition of the veil which all Iranian women uh, wore in public places. Yeah, so let me get into that, the dress codes. Um, this has always struck me as as quite bizarre as, as a kid who grew up in the West that, that the mandatory dress codes. Can, can you explain it from Reza Shah's perspective, at least, what was the goal of so-called sartorial uniformity? Yes, which is a lovely phrase used by another uh, historian. Uh, first of all, I want to continue to emphasize it was not Reza Shah alone, but the men he gathered around him 
who were the as it were the source for many of these ideas, but he embraced and adopted them. But in Iran at that time, first of all, the tribes all had uh, their own uh, style and and traditions of dress, their own headdress, and headdress was a means by which uh, the members of the the tribes and clans, and even Iranians living in different parts of the country, distinguish themselves from one another, which is a form of identity. So the imposition of sartorial uniformity was at least seen as a way of uh, bringing all Iranians together, of erasing these differences between tribe and uh, urban dweller, between different parts of the country. It was, uh, so first of all, there was a, the adoption of a, what was came to be called the Pahlavi uh, hat, which was a peaked cap that was common in France. So all Iranians were required to wear the Pahlavi hats. Is this the fedora, the 1935 fedora, or is that a different uh, hat? Well, well, no, then the 1935, there was imposed on men anyway, Uh uh, the fedora hats, the Western fedora hats. What's the purpose of the hat? I don't... (laughs) I don't understand. I mean, it's, it's very nice, but why, why make that mandatory? Well, I think uh, to copy the phrase used by another historian, uh, there was an attempt not only to establish, to impose sartorial uniformity, but sartorial modernity. Ah. And so the idea was to adopt um, a, a Western form of headdress. And behind that idea was a rather simplistic idea, which is if Iranians dress as people did in the West, uh, in Europe, uh, then this would somehow advance the project of modernization. The imposition of the fedora hat proved the last straw for the clergy, and uh, they began to preach against it. And in fact, in mosque in Mashhad, uh, after preaching by a clergyman against the hat, there were actually riots, and the police moved in, many people were killed, so it led to violence, this attempt at sartorial westernization. Right. It's, and it's not just the clergy. I mean, so there's a, so to, to put a fine point on it, there's a 1929 policy mandating that men wear European suits. Then in 1935, the fedoras for men. And of course, uh, in the mid-30s, the, the, the mandatory removal of the hijab that you spoke about, the uh, headdress for, for, for women. Um, 
And this leads to, uh, you know, having said that all we've all you've described about the the remarkable feats of of uh, Reza Shah in power. This leads to, I suppose, the other side of Reza Shah, which is his impetus or um, desire or perhaps a resignation at uh, needing to reign with an iron will, an iron force. Um, just on this point itself, and I, I should say we're probably going to do a whole other episode on the hijab issue because it's it's big enough in, in, in its symbolism and what it meant and what it didn't mean at that time. Why did he feel, why would he feel that uh, he needs to be so ironclad about this? And would he not see or those around him, those intelligent uh, men in his circle, etc., not see that this was going to start to create the winds of popular dissent? I don't suppose he saw it. He was shaped by his military background and experience. He had inherited a country that was so divided and uh, weak that he felt that only by an iron will he could uh, centralize and reform it. A certain amount of, what shall we say, pressure from above was probably was necessary. But yes, I mean, as he continued in his reign, he became more dictatorial, more intolerant of dissent or disagreement, more determined to impose his will by force if necessary. So, yes, I mean, we've been talking about the positive things Reza Shah did, but on the other side of the scale was this tendency towards autocratic rule and even dictatorial rule. And uh, the, the legacy he left behind was the absence of political institutions like political parties uh, or trade unions or politicians with an independent cast of mind. Let me get to that. Let me get to that, the, the, the democratic institutions. Just on the on this notion of the man himself, I mean, at one point you describe him as an imperious leader with a ferocious temper. Uh, what, what have you learned about what he was like to deal with? Well, he really was very intolerant of dissent or disagreement. Increasingly over the years, his ministers and lieutenants were, to put it simply, afraid of it. As one uh, diplomat described it, uh, many of his ministers left uh, meetings with him quaking in fear. And uh, he was not beyond beating his ministers. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, and even officers in the army. And so uh, really to that extent, he became Im imperial and uh, dictatorial. You actually, uh, Dr. Bachash, you, you have a, a whole section that you outline, I have to say, with some shocking detail, the fate of almost all of Reza Shah's ministers and top Iranian politicians and leaders throughout his reign, most of them jailed or deposed or even killed. <laughs> 
can you can you i mean when you read it all in one one go it's quite shocking can you um cite a couple of examples of those people well for example uh his uh, minister of justice davar who was responsible for all the for the codification of the laws and the introduction of very modern civil service codes judicial codes committed suicide many think because of fear of incurring Reza Shah's disappointment his minister of court Temurtash who became the really after Reza Shah the most powerful man in Iran he conducted all of Reza Shah's major negotiations with foreign governments he sat in on cabinet meetings um he was the intermediary between the shah and the shah's ministers was thrown into jail allegedly because of corruption but because enemies began to whisper in reza shah's ear um about demurtash's ambitions and uh, aroused his suspicions uh, he was uh, in any case he was jailed and he died in prison many think by poisoning wow so there's this study in contrast once again um there's this man on who on the one hand is a progressive who is on this quest for modernization and building iran's global status and is doing so in an unprecedented way on the other hand reza shah has also been called an autocrat he's known to have suppressed dissent and ruled with an iron will where do you stand would you go so far as to say he was a dictator I think he came very close to being a dictator yes because by the end of his reign there really was no power other than the shah in iran and as i said earlier the unhappy wages of this is that he didn't leave behind any legacy for uh, an independent politics in iran if you compare again to Ataturk in Turkey uh, after Ataturk passed away there was in Turkey political parties the possibility of an independent press of a politics inside the country uh, in Iran there was not and really it was a legacy that has been hard to shake off even today <laughs> yes and it's a difficult one um i i kind of want to ask you where you where you come <laughs> where, where you stand at the end of doing all the research and, and and writing that you've done when you look at this legacy of a man who transforms or helps to transform iran in so many significant ways um, but then, as you say, doesn't leave the infrastructure of democratic institutions that can that can uh, lead to a modernized de- democratic country. Um, so, how do you assess or look at his um, his legacy then yourself? Well, your question itself uh, reflects the mixed feelings I have about Reza Shah. On the one hand, uh, I admire him for what he accomplished. uh building up a modern state 
creating Iran's judicial system, its army, its system of education, above all, the liberation of women, freeing Iran from foreign tutelage and interference, which we haven't talked about. On the other hand, there was this autocratic side to him, which denied the country uh, the possibility of democratic institutions, such as strong political parties, independent-minded politicians, a democratic cast of mind. After all, you don't need only political parties and parliaments and so forth. You need a people who have absorbed the idea of freedom and democracy, and certainly Reza Shah did not leave that behind. As I say, when we talk about the fall of uh, Reza Shah, there are external reasons why Reza Shah uh, ends up abdicating the throne, of course, the, the World War II and the, the British and the Russians, and we're going to get into that. But in terms of what he did and how his actions would create the conditions where he wouldn't have the support or popularity or counsel of those around him. It seems that there's there's two options to a certain extent. There's there's one that says he he was so progressive that his rapid attempts at modernization it was too much too soon and and that there, there it was just too difficult when you add up all the the forces that like the clergy or others that he had to deal with that that um it was a monstrous task the other being that um he ruled with too much of an iron hand and when he loses those around him uh and and the inability of anybody to stand up to him he he loses the counsel of those and and his ability to really have any perspective on on ruling what do you think of of the conditions that he created, notwithstanding the outside conditions that would lead to him uh, giving up the throne, the conditions that he created for his own fall? Well, he certainly wasn't popular at the end of his reign, the way he might have been at the beginning of his reign. Um, and he didn't have the public support that might have prevented foreign powers of engineering his abdication. Uh, but I'm, I'm not so sure that without the invasion of Iran by the Allied powers during World War II and the role that uh, particularly Britain and the Soviet Union played, that his abdication would have taken place in normal circumstances. So really his, his abdication, we're not talking about his popularity now, but his abdication was uh, the product mostly of foreign um, intervention in Iran and World War II, rather than an internal uprising or internal action. Hmm. So, Dr. Bakhash, in 16 years as a king of Iran, with, with a firm hold, Reza Shah transformed the country. Would anyone have guessed at the beginning of 1941 that Reza Shah would be abdicating later that year? Uh, I'm sure he certainly would not have so guessed, nor was anyone aware that the abdication was coming by the early 1940s, the Second World War is in full swing. 
Iran had remained neutral in the war. Why? Why was Reza Shah so resolute in not wanting to take a side in World War II? Well, he wanted Iran to remain neutral because he wanted to protect Iran from the ravages of the war and not to involve in the war. Besides, Iran had close trade relations with all the powers in the war, with Germany particularly, with Britain, and with the Soviet Union. And many uh, projects being carried out, particularly by Germany, were still underway, and he did not want to see those interrupted, uh, including the construction of a steel mill in Iran. Uh, all these reasons, and I think the experience of World War One, when again Iran was not involved but was dragged into the war by foreign powers, he wanted to avoid that as well. Talk to us about the the depth of the German presence in Iran by 1940. How deep was it? How how much was uh, Germany inside Iran at this point? Oh, very deeply so. Germany was Iran's largest trading partner. It was uh, responsible for a number of industrial projects, some completed, some still underway. And Germany had helped set up Iran's modern banking system, its electrification. There were Germans in the railroad system and in communications. this German presence was a source of concern to the Allies, uh, Britain first and the Soviet Union next. I mean, they act on that concern by 1941, but I'm curious if you know before that time, say by 1940, how much of an issue was the German presence in Iran for the Allies? Uh, I don't think it was a security issue. I mean, clearly... Uh, Germany played uh, a role in the Iranian economy and had, as a result, influence in Iran. That may have been a source of resentment, but did not lead to security concerns as it did once the hostilities began. So in 1941, the the, the British and Russians invade Iran. Uh, This is in August of 41. Before that, the British begin leaning on Reza Shah to take actions against Germany. Uh, and he does take actions against the Germans at the request of, of, the, of the British and the, the Russians. What, what do they ask and what does he do? Well, they wanted him basically to expel the Germans in Iran because they were concerned lest this large German presence in sensitive areas of the economy like the railways and the communication system, and particularly they were not involved in Iran's oil industry, the British were, but they were particularly concerned that Germans in Iran would uh, serve as agents for the Hitler's regime and sabotage the oil fields or the oil installations in the south. They continued to pressure Reza Shah to expel the Germans. Rajad Shah did send some uh, Germans home, but he was reluctant, uh, in fact, resisted uh, sending them all away as the British and the Russians demanded, in part because they were involved in industries and other projects, and uh, because, as he 
rightly argued the uh, Germans would regard such an expulsion of their nationals as a hostile act and a violation of Iran's neutrality. He feared then the Germans would invade Iran. I wonder if we know anything about the personal predilections of of Reza Shah at this point. I mean, did he have any particular affinity for the British or the Germans or the Russians? It occurs to me that he spends the first half of his life, you know, with the Cossack Brigade, which is a Russian-led uh, and Russian-influenced uh, army. Did, did, does that mean he grew up pro-Russian? Do we know anything about that? No, I don't think so. But the British and the Russians had dominated Iran ever since the 19th century. They interfered in Iranian politics. And one of Reza Shah's aims was to end this foreign domination of Iran. In fact, Germany came to be regarded as it were a third force and as a balance to these two great powers that neighbored Iran. I think, you know, Reza Shah admired Germany for its economic accomplishments and also for its kind of discipline and firm rule, that that sort of thing. Uh, And many Iranians in the uh, ruling elites uh, had that same admiration for Germany. But I think it's wrong to, as some have uh, asserted, uh, that Reza Shah was uh, pro-Nazi. I think Reza Shah knew very little about what was going on in Germany internally and the kind of regime that Hitler was running in his country. You you note in your book, and you just mentioned it a moment ago, that that the Iranian population by the uh, early 1940s was very largely pro-German. What what do you attribute this pro-German sentiment to? Partly the result of the anti-British, anti-Russian sentiment. Uh, Also, the politically aware Iranians saw Britain as a supporter of Reza Shah. They even believed, they came to believe that it was the British who brought him to power. Um, And uh, since Reza Shah had grown increasingly unpopular, and his rule resented inside the country, this association with England, and to a lesser extent with Russia, inclined many Iranians towards Germany. Meaning that, um, uh, not that I want to indict the Iranians of mid-20th century for, you know, but I mean, meaning that they were, were actually on the side of Germany in the war, they're thinking they're, they're pro-Hitler? I imagine somewhere, and at least according to British reporting, many officers in the army were also pro-German. But as I say, this was less due to a knowledge of the character of the regime that Hitler had established in Germany as uh, seeing Germany as a counterweight to the Uh, great powers, and admiration for Germany's um, economic uh, accomplishments and its discipline. So 
the the big event that leads to a series of other events that in, include the end of uh, Reza Shah's reign is the invasion of Iran by uh, Britain and the Russians in August of 1941. Why did the British and Russians invade Iran in August of 1941? Well, the publicly stated reason was the large German presence, the danger this German presence posed to allied interests and the uh, uh, refusal of Reza Shah to expel the Germans. But I think the critical reason was that once Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, getting aid to uh, Russia and its hard-pressed army was crucial to the war effort. And for this, the Allies needed access to uh, Iran's overland routes from the Persian Gulf to the Soviet Union. The use of Iran's railways and roads to supply Russia would have been incompatible with Iranian neutrality and so the Allies invaded. Does the invasion take Reza Shah by surprise? I'm sure it did. Uh, I think by by now, he not only had become, I mean, as a part of the autocratic dictatorial tendencies he had adopted, he uh, really was not as aware as he had been early in his reign of what was going on in the world. He had isolated himself. And uh, I don't know to what extent his ministers realized that an invasion was imminent, but they certainly were fearful. They'd be too of, scared to tell him. <laughs> of telling him the truth, yeah. You repeatedly, there's correspondence in your book, which is quite remarkable. You have these letters uh, that repeatedly show that the British were quite convinced that Reza Shah was deeply unpopular by this point with the Iranian people and that this would be a liability for the British. Do we know that he was this unpopular? I don't really think we know it as it were in a provable way, but anecdotally, yes. Uh, but I, it's possible that uh, Sir Rita Bullard, the British ambassador, and his very influential press secretary, Nancy Lambton, exaggerated. I mean, I don't mean they invented, but they had an exaggerated sense of how unpopular Reza Shah was. A, a very, I mean, Bullard had himself, the British ambassador, had himself grown increasingly disenchanted with Reza Shah and his dispatches to London are increasingly critical both of Reza Shah and his rule, but also sensitive to the British association with Reza Shah in the Iranian mind. And he was greatly influenced by a report that Nancy Lambton, his press attaché, uh, drew up along these lines. Lambton knew Persian very well. She traveled around the country a great deal. She did talk to people at, of all classes and different levels of society. 
And in her memorandum, she argued that Reza Shah was vastly unpopular with the majority of the population, that in the Iranian mind, Reza Shah remained in power only due to British support, and that Britain was unpopular in Iran due to this association with Reza Shah. Of course, the British were unpopular in Iran for a large number of reasons. Right. Not only this one, but in any case, that is the argument that the Ambassador Bullard made in his dispatches to London and even began to suggest on the eve of the uh, Allied invasion of Iran in August of 1941. And later, when the invasion and occupation has taken place, that it was necessary not only to distance, for Britain to distance itself from Reza Shah, but actually for to replace him right. on the throne. Although, although, although I should note that, uh, that you note that Ambassador Bullard, uh, this British minister to Iran, uh, he's quite capricious, it seems, because by in early 1941, I mean, you say he's increasingly disenchanted, but but there's dispatches from early 1941 where he's endorsing and supporting Reza Shah, and then by midway through that year, he's calling for his effective removal, right? Yes, I mean, when he first is uh, appointed uh, minister, major ambassador to Iran, he sees it as his primary responsibility to win over Reza Shah's friendship for Britain. And he went out of his way in the first year, in his first year in Iran, to accommodate the Shah in uh, what he wanted and needed in terms of, of trade and supplies to Iran and exemptions for Iran on the restrictions on trade that Britain had placed particularly with uh, Germany, but he grows disenchanted with Reza Shah and uh, turns against him. And as I say, begins to suggest to his government that not only that they should distance themselves from Reza Shah, but eventually also to seek his expulsion. Right. So there's a couple of reasons that you outlined for why they're seeking his expulsion by uh, mid-1941. One is the the question around popularity and his unpopularity in the eyes of the British. Uh, the second around um, this notion that he's not going to fully cooperate with the Allies if they do leave him in power. Let me take them one at a time. Would it have been conceivable that the British would not have ousted him had they believed he was very popular in the country? In other words, if if Reza Shah really was popular and still had all of his ministers and, and you know, had the, had the support of the population, would it have been possible that the British would not have followed this path? Well, it's obviously a very different um, equation if he had been popular. Uh, but had he been popular but insisted on maintaining Iran's neutrality in the war, I think they would have invaded anyway. Uh, because once, uh, as I said, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, access to Iran's overland routes became crucial to the war effort. And I think that was the main reason for the 
invasion to begin with. But uh, but why were the British why were the British so sure that Reza Shah would not work with the Allies or would obstruct? full cooperation and that an abdication would be necessary. In other words, if they really drew the line with him and said, look, we're about to remove you, would he would he have cooperated? Well, they, they feared he'd, he'd not be fully cooperative with uh, Britain and the Soviet Union's needs in terms of access to Iran's railways, its ports, its uh, airfields and the like. Uh, Reza Shah also attempting to maintain a semblance of Iranian neutrality, continued to maintain diplomatic relations with some of Germany's allies, and being a, an autocrat and not liking foreign <laughs> interference uh, in Iran, they assumed that he would not fully cooperate with them and their presence in Iran. It's a bit sad, really, that some in the Iranian population would not appreciate or or like Reza Shah because of his association with the British, and yet what brings him down in the end is he's not associated with the British enough in the, in the eyes of the British. It's, uh, he's yes. sort of getting it from all sides, isn't he? There's this outstanding part of your book, where, I mean, outstanding in, in terms of a bit shocking, really, where you uh, and I don't know if anybody had talked about this before you you do in this new book of yours, where you outline that that the, the British toyed with the idea of not allowing for the succession of the of, of the constitutional era, Mohammad Reza, at all, but toyed with the idea of getting rid of the Pahlavis altogether and bringing back a scion of the Qajar dynasty. How serious were they about this? Well, that's really a rather interesting story. Uh, the originator, the originator of this idea of replacing the Pahlavis once again with the Qajars was Peter Avery, the uh, Secretary of State for India. Avery had got it to his head that a Qajar prince in exile in London with whom he had become a friend would be a much better king and friend to Britain than the Pahlavis. And initially, when he began to press this idea to the Foreign Secretary, Anthony Eden, both Eden and the Foreign Office in general were very skeptical. But Amory persisted in pushing for a Qajar restoration and because of the problems they were having with Reza Shah, and because of uh, Bullard's continued negative reporting on Reza Shah, they actually toyed with the idea for a brief period. Uh, I think what, oddly enough, what saved the day for um, the Pahlavis was no other than Sir Reader Bullard. Hmm. Bullard, despite his really dislike, I think, is the only way to put it for Reza Shah, was uh, in a long dispatch um, explained why a change of regime uh, at that particular moment would not be a good idea. First of all, he said there was enough disorder due to the war and the invasion not to invite 
even more turbulence in Iran by a change in regime. Uh, secondly, he believed the constitutional path, which is to allow succession by Reza Shah's eldest son, would be the best thing. And I think Bullard was much influenced by the foreign minister, the Iranian foreign minister and the Iranian foreign secretary, who persuaded him that uh, maintaining the Pahlavis on the throne would be a much better course of action. Besides, there really was no support for the Qajars in Iran. They had become very unpopular and little respected in Iran by the end of their reign. I think these factors together led Eden finally, after toying with the idea of dynastic change, of yes, dynasty change, to abandon it. By the way, that the Qajar prince in exile in, in London would be Ahmad Shah's son? Was son, he? son, yes. Son, right, right. But, but there, I mean, there really wasn't any other option than Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, was there? I mean, the, 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 there's nobody well, waiting in the wings. The British even toyed with the idea of of one of his brothers. Uh, I mean, it's really, it was. It's a, it, I, I uh, devote a chapter in the book to this rather strange episode yes. because it was so pie in the sky. It's very hard to understand how the British could even think of uh, such a thing, but they did uh, in the confusion of the times. Uh, there's also the fact that the Bullard was persuaded by the Iranian prime minister and foreign secretary that uh, Reza Shah's eldest son, the successor, uh, was young, was reform-minded, was well-meaning, and would rule well. I, that too was a factor. You know, just as a sidebar, it really is. <laughs> it really is sort of textbook twentieth century uh, imperialism, isn't it? Like it, it's like uh, the British, <laughs> the British, you know, spinning a roulette wheel and going, "Okay, we want to get rid of this guy. Who are we going to put in his place?" I mean, it's it it really is a, a fine example of of what happened all over the place, I guess, throughout the, the, the 20th century. I quite agree. I mean, this whole idea that you could remove kings, change dynasties, was still part of the imperial mindset. By September 1941, uh, the Allies, the British, decide they need to invade and occupy Tehran. And it's in those days, in fact, September 16th of 1941, that Reza Shah gives up the throne. Now, I say gives up the throne. There is some historical disagreement about whether this was ultimately his decision or whether he was forced out. Where do you stand on that question, or is it even relevant? Oh, I think it was, it's very clear that he was forced out. You know, when the Allies occupied Iran, they did not initially enter the capital. Both the Russians and the British uh, avoided uh, entering Tehran itself or occupying it. The British Foreign Secretary, Antony Eden, knew with near certainty that Reza Shah would abdicate if they did occupy the capital. First of all, he was uh, perhaps too proud 
to rule over a country occupied, its capital occupied by foreign powers. Uh, secondly, he really feared the Russians and he feared the Russians uh, might arrest him. And you can see from the uh, British correspondence and archives, Eden was very well aware of this and manipulated things and worked with the Russian ambassador in London, Maisky, to bring the occupation um, around. There's an interesting little episode here. Uh, the British uh, and the Russians demanded the closure of the embassies of Germany's allies in Europe. Eden tells the Russian ambassador Maisky that if the Iranians don't comply by the deadline, we will occupy the capital. Right. And if they do so, then we shall find uh, have to find another reason for occupying the right, capital. Right, right. So by then he was quite set, Eden was, on forcing Reza Shah to abdicate. When you when you talk about Reza Shah being proud, a proud man, um, there's a little detail. I, I can't remember now if it's in the book or if, if, if I've seen you talking about it, but but where this is a man who, for almost all of his adult life, and certainly when he is the reigning Shah, is wearing his military outfit, is wearing his official garb. And from the moment he abdicates, he's forced from the throne, he refuses to wear that, and he wears sort of civilian clothing, which he sees as a as downgrade. Is that right? Can you speak to that? Yes, it's really a rather interesting thing that once he abdicates, he abandons the military form, he'd, uh, the military uniform he'd worn all his uh, adult life, as if he no longer deserved it. Uh, and he hated civilian clothes, mm. but he continued to wear them during his exile. You know, I should note that when we talk about the British agreeing to, to, to Mohammad Reza Shah becoming the, the new Shah, the son, uh, this decision is made, you note, um, the accession is allowed, but only on trial, quote unquote, and on the condition of, quote unquote, good behavior, uh, which of course is as patronizing as it can get but but how were they how were the british defining this uh, i mean was were they defining this as mohammad reza shah having to agree to anything the british wanted or what is what is good behavior considered well i certainly think it was uh, close cooperation with the allies during the war and then being undertaking reforms as the prime minister and the foreign minister believed he would. Thirdly, I suppose if the war was over, continuing to be a good friend to Britain. Yes, and so it really is an interesting sideline to the British final agreement to allow Mohammad Reza Shah to succeed his father. How would that have been communicated to him, do you think? 
Was that something they told him in a back room, or is that written somewhere? Uh, or? Oh, yeah, oh, yes. I mean, Eden, in a cable to his ambassador in Tehran, Bullard makes this quite clear. These are his words. No, I know Eden says that, but how did they tell the Shah that, Mohammad Reza Shah? I don't think they they told him that, yeah. they, they, but they must have told his ministers. Ah. Uh, now, whether they conveyed it to him, you must be a good boy. Uh, I, I really do not know, but they were aware of it. I have to say, you know, um, uh, Dr. Bakhash, your, your, this new book of yours, The Fall of Reza Shah, that the second half of it is is focused on uh, Reza Shah's final years in exile. Uh, and it's, it's, it's quite a sad read. I mean, it's not, it, it, there's really nothing to celebrate about those final years. Um, but it's also a bit of a Rubik's Cube for the British. I mean, it seems like the British uh, developed this very delicate problem with sending Reza Shah into exile because they could not have wanted an unhappy ex-king on their hands and the bad PR that would come with that when they're trying to maintain goodwill and cooperation with the new Shah in Tehran during the war effort, how hard was all of this to stick handle for the British? Well, it is, well, it is first of all, a rather uh, sad story of a once very powerful man, very independent man, now being in the hands of a foreign power, one of the powers he set out to free Iran from whose domination. Um, he was unhappy in exile. The British first took him to the island of Mauritius, which he hated. Uh, it was an island, it was small, it was surrounded by the sea, and he came from a village in the mountains and even said he yearned for the bracing air of a mountainous country. Hmm. Secondly, well, his movements uh, were controlled by the British. The British decided whether he could uh, have visitors from Iran or whether members of his family who had accompanied him could leave uh, Mauritius and later uh, the second place of exile, Johannesburg. Uh, they uh, censored his mail and that of his family. So clearly that all didn't go over very well and was difficult. And the British, on the other hand, found uh, Reza Shah and his the members of his family demanding, difficult to please. So on both sides, it really was an unhappy relationship in these years of exile. By the time Reza Shah abdicates and he's in exile, uh, particularly in Mauritius, you describe him as a man who was broken. Can you tell us more about that? <clears throat> well, his, his family saw him a man, uh, as a man who was broken. Uh, his daughter, one of his daughters, described him as stooped, his shoulders bent, uh, he took very little joy in anything, certainly on the island of Mauritius. Um, in Mauritius, he refused to venture out of the home the British had chosen for him. He only left the house 
twice. Once when his son was involved in a minor automobile accident, and the second time to attend a dinner given by the governor of Mauritius uh, to mark the signing of the tripartite treaty between uh, Iran, Britain, and uh, the Soviet Union. When members of his family urged him to accompany them on an outing, he said no, that he was a prisoner and must behave like a prisoner. He's so unhappy in Mauritius that the, the British are trying to find a, a place to send him, and they're getting denied by many countries around the world. Um, one of the options, it was interesting for me to, to, to read this um, as an Iranian-Canadian, one of the options was Canada. Reza Shah may have come to Canada. Do we know if Canada gave the green light to Reza Shah to come? Uh, and wouldn't it be easier for the British to control him in a British-associated place like Canada rather than Johannesburg? Uh, well, the, the British had a lot of influence in Johannesburg too, but of course it would have been easier. But it was a long trip from Mauritius to Canada. It meant getting the Canadian government's agreement. Uh, it would be obviously more difficult to supervise him in Canada. He wanted to go there. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons they uh, sought the Canadian government's agreement to play host to Reza Shah was because he wanted to go there. They thought he might be happier there. And the Canadian government did agree. But again, uh, as they were told, they should exercise as they called it, a discreet supervision over him, over whom he received as visitors to censor his mail and so forth. You know, that's, uh, I often um, find that you, you learn the most about someone in the, in the little details again. Uh, and something that you describe really hit me where by the time Reza Shah, I mean, you know, this this period in exile is not very long uh, until he dies, obviously. Uh, and by the time he gets to South Africa, uh, a year or two into the exile and in his final year of, of, of living, uh, he's quite frail. He's in the need of doctors and medicine, but he refuses help. He doesn't take ambulances, won't go to hospitals. Um, so, again, it's an interesting paradox. I mean, despite the fact that he's now, as you've described him, a broken man, he's still too proud to admit that he's in ill health, huh? Indeed, that's very striking, that even though he was sick, he developed heart trouble, uh, he refused doctors or pay, to pay attention to doctors or to refuse, and he refused medication, to take medication. He hated the idea when he arrived in Johannesburg that they had an ambulance waiting for him. Uh, so yes, he remained a very proud man till the very end. There's also, it's intriguing um, and difficult, this um, strange uh, dysfunctional relationship in the family um, and, and, and with Reza Shah and Muhammad Reza Shah, I mean, first of all, I, I can't even get into the how what the mindset is of, you, you know, you you supersede your father to become king and your father is exiled and the whole thing is strange. But then, 
Uh, Reza Shah is asking Mohammad Reza Shah for money, which he then sends uh, to to Reza Shah, and um, Reza Shah is, is and the family are unhappy, but they're in relatively okay material conditions in Johannesburg. Can you describe those th- those final months and what was happening there? I mean, the financial arrangements during his exile are interesting. Uh, the British took the view that since they had taken him into exile, they should be responsible for his household expenses. But anything personal, personal expenses should be paid by Reza Shah himself in the period in Mauritius. But they always somehow resented carrying this expense. And when Reza Shah pressed to leave Mauritius for somewhere else, they made clear that because he was changing his place of exile himself, if he left Mauritius, he'd be responsible for his own expenses. So uh, after he left Mauritius, uh, Reza Shah had to pay for his own household expenses, rent, and so forth himself. Now, his son in Tehran, Mohammad Reza Shah, uh, transferred money to him at regular intervals. So he was well supplied with money. But he always seemed to be worrying about not having enough and always pressing his son to send him more money. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, he perhaps... Uh, having been by the end of his reign a very wealthy man and suddenly ending up with nothing uh, made him feel concerned about money. And he, he did have a very large family before he left Iran when the British consul was pressing him to leave more quickly. Uh, one of his comments was, where am I to go with this hoard? I don't have a penny to my name. <laughs> so he felt this need to be well supplied with funds, in part because of his very large family that had accompanied him. But it's also the case, as I describe in the book, that by the end of his reign, he, he was a very wealthy man. He had amassed a great deal of property all over Iran. He had very substantial bank accounts in Iran. Again, under British pressure, uh, his bank accounts and his properties under British pressure, he transferred all his wealth to his son, supposedly for use for the welfare of the country. So he really did leave Iran without a penny to his name and became dependent on his son to supply him with money. And Dr. Bahash, do we know anything about their relationship? Like you don't include any correspondence between them in the book or anything. I mean, what what do we know about what their relationship was by the end? No, I really don't think we know enough. I mean, there is uh, Reza Shah himself was very devoted to his son, and always eager when travelers were allowed to come and visit him in Mauritius or Johannesburg for news of his son and what he was doing. 
he was extremely happy to receive the rare letter from his son and once even a recording of his son's voice. What Muhammad Reza Shah, the successor now on the throne, felt about his father, we don't know. But he certainly was sensitive to make sure his father was comfortable, mm. that his wishes were met, and pressed the British on that. And as you happened to mention um, earlier, the need to, uh, the British need to have Muhammad Reza Shah's cooperation during the occupation uh, led them to try and meet uh, Reza Shah's wishes. By his final months, and this is 1944, I guess, in Johannesburg, uh, Reza Shah becomes increasingly reclusive. He's not seeing people. He doesn't really go out. He he seems like he had become a shadow of the powerful military leader and, and king that he once was. Um, how can you describe what you, you've learned about his final days? Well, as you say, he became increasingly reclusive. He hardly left his house. He hardly saw anyone. Uh, except his members of his immediate family. So yes, he had become a shadow of his former self. And I think it was a very lonely last year for him in Johannesburg. Has anyone, uh, I mean, it's sort of delicate, obviously, but has anyone drawn the, uh, surely somebody has, the, the comparison, the sort of, um, macabre comparison between the final days of Reza Shah and then what happens in the final days of Muhammad Reza Shah. I mean, it's 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 in a very difficult, sad way, quite reminiscent, isn't it? Quite resonant. It's really very striking that that both Pahlavi monarchs end up uh, losing the throne in, in the case of Muhammad Reza Shah the kingship itself for Iran, that both father and son uh, spent their last years in exile. Also, the fact that, you know, Reza Shah's remains were buried initially in Egypt mm. during the war, mm. before they were transferred to Iran after the war. And it's striking that Mohammad Reza Shah spent part of his last uh, months in alive in exile in Egypt. In fact, he died there. Yes. So yes, these parallels between father and son and unhappy last year, in the case of Reza Shah, his unhappy last years are very striking. It, it seems, I mean, if you believe in universal intervention, neither of them are are meant to be in exile. I mean, they neither of them last very long in exile. You know, they, it's just, just it just, their their bodies give out. It's it's this is not where they're meant to be, and and uh, uh, it's um, yeah, it's striking. Re reading the, uh, the 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 final days of Reza Shah, I, I couldn't help but think about the Shah, about Muhammad. Yes, rightly so. And just the sad, you know, the sad sort of lottery of a 
of an imperial power running around the world trying to find where to place them in exile and different countries rejecting them. And I mean, the whole thing is is so, like I say, macabre that it happens to father and son. You know, it's a uh, it's a, an epic saga. Um, this. Um, before I let you go, you know, reflecting on this and thinking about how uh, how quickly and how impressively Reza Shah um, comes to power in Iran and transforms a nation, um, it is striking how quickly he is ousted out of power. And the simplest analysis of the end of Reza Shah, of course, is that World War II happened. And it affected Iran. And in the end, despite Iran's public gestures of neutrality as much as any other country in the world, because it causes the abdication of a powerful ruling king, Iran is affected by this war. If World War II had not happened, if you'll forgive me for playing this game, what would the plight of Reza Shah be? His inner circle had dwindled. He was, by all accounts, no longer entirely beloved by the Iranian population. Yet it's hard to imagine he would have stepped down. I think of this because I think of what happens with Mohammad Reza Shah, who then becomes a very powerful king for many for a few decades. Um, this wouldn't have occurred if World War II hadn't occurred in the way it did. Can you make sense of all of that? Well, Reza Shah, I don't think there's any indication he would have been overthrown internally or he would have stepped down voluntarily. He would have finished his reign in Iran until his death. Uh, Mohammad Reza Shah, of course, was overthrown by a revolution, and he had to leave Iran, and the monarchy itself was abolished. So, uh, alongside the similarities we noted between father and son in terms of losing their thrones, there are these differences as well. That's a perfect segue before we get to uh, the final question. Actually, a question with two parts, a micro and a macro part. The micro part being, uh, it's amazing to me that you were, I mean, it's a, it's a great fortune to, to be able to talk to you because you were actually born in Iran while Reza Shah was still in power. Um, and I wonder if you have any memories as a kid of um, what your impression of Reza Shah would be, uh, even even in the years after he left, and none. I was much too young. Ah. <laughs> but, okay. But 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 uh, uh, our house in Tehran was on the main avenue uh, that led uh, also to the routes from the north, and uh, I remember distinctly as a five-year-old watching the Russians marching into Tehran during the Allied occupation of Iran in uh, 1941. Wow. So I, I do remember the, the tanks and the trucks passing by our house uh, as the Russians occupied, along with the British, the capital. And I guess the macro part of my final question, uh, 
there's there's been an interesting resuscitation maybe or celebration of Reza Shah more recently uh, I, I can't speak to exactly what's happening in Iran these days but I can certainly say in the diaspora there are, there's a great fondness for him in many parts of the of the diaspora uh, um, does that surprise you um, it does I mean interesting interesting enough um, under the rule of the clergy in the Islamic Republic, there is renewed admiration for Reza Shah and a renewed nostalgia for a leader who would be a secularizer, who would be modern, and who would be devoted to Iran's being part of the modern international community. Dr. Shalbachosh, it has been a uh, a great education and a um, a great pleasure. I can only thank you so much for the time and uh, for your efforts, and I hope to do it uh, again and in person at some point. Thank you. Let, let me add before you go that I really uh, admired how well you had mastered the period yourself uh, and how well you speak and what good questions you pose. That means a lot to me coming from you. It really, it really does. Thank you for saying that. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Shal Bakosh, an Iranian-American historian, author, scholar, and the Clarence J. Robinson Professor of History Emeritus at George Mason University. That book he put out this past year, The Fall of Reza Shah, The Abdication, Exile, and Death of Modern Iran's Founder. Dr. Bachosh was in Virginia. This is full time for Rook. Thank you so much for listening. You can visit our website, rookmedia.com, for all of our previous episodes and to learn how to support us. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together, Roham, Anahita, Super P, Parisa, Pega, Meritod. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Giangomeshi and as ever, Mizun Bashin.